All right, flip to James 5, and we're going to look at verses 13 to 20, effectual prayer, James chapter 5. Uh, let's pray first, and then we'll, we'll uh, unpack the text. Our Father and God, we ask and pray with faith and hope that your spirit would be ever-present in this gathering, that we would behold your glory in the face of your Son, our Lord Jesus the Christ. Father, I ask that this day um, we would be marked by righteousness and prayer, um, but not the empty prayers of a disobedient people, rather the effectual prayers of a faithful people. And I ask, of course, this in your Son's name, our King. Amen. Amen. All right, look at verse 13, <clears throat> and we'll just kind of take chunk by chunk. James 5.13, Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. The word suffering here indicates that there are things that are happening to you externally. Uh, these are hardships or perhaps other unpleasantries like persecution in the face of spreading the gospel. I uh, just think of Brother Matt and what was shared with him out, out west. Um, these are hardships that could be persecution or frankly they could just be difficult circumstances that you find yourself in because life in this world is not yet perfect. Perhaps a relational snarl or a business faux pas, you name it. Uh, these are difficult situations, James says, to pray. Now we've already been told that in the midst of trials, if you remember from chapter 1, that we are to count them as joy. And this is because trials are a means used towards the end of our maturation. That's the goal, is the maturity that we have in Christ. Our, our, our hope and prayer is that any circumstance we find ourselves in, that we could be humble and teachable and learn something so that we can be found mature in Christ. So when all of this stuff occurs, James says to pray. Then he must pray. Very simple. Very simple task. Now, our prayer could be for the deliverance from the trial, but our primary aim is what I think James is getting at is didactic. Trials teach us something. Trials are meant to teach us something. And we want to ask God, of course, for wisdom in learning the lesson. We don't want to be ignorant of that. We don't want to just, um, you know, self-loathe in those situations. Uh, and we're not even necessarily looking for pity, though perhaps empathy and, and things like that are, are a good thing and can be encouraging, unlike Job's friends. So we want to be able to learn the lesson in the, in the midst of the trial. That's the goal. So be humble enough to say, God, what are you teaching me right now? However, because God is good, there are times when we are cheerful. And we're not suffering. We are cheerful. And our prayers then ought to be given in the form of a song. He says, if anyone's cheerful, sing praises. Sing praises to God. Um, if you find yourself in a fit of joy... Then sing, for crying out loud. Sing. Sing to God. Memorize songs. Keep songs with you. Um, isn't it amazing that we can carry in our pocket the entire library of Apple Music or Spotify, as it were? Uh, you can find songs and music to, to sing along with. If you're joyful, then you're supposed to sing. Um, that's a form of prayer, getting it out of your soul and out through this wonderful vehicle that God has given us in the form of music. Uh, look at verses 14 and 15. If anyone among you sick, is anyone among you sick, then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Notice the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. 
So moving from external issues uh, like joy of circumstances or suffering because of circumstances, we're talking about internal issues. Now, James tells us that there are those who are sick and sometimes the sickness is self-inflicted. Now, we have to be very, very careful here. All right. So we don't want to do quid pro quo. You know, every time you're sick, you did something naughty. Let's not go there. And here's why. Let's think biblically. In John 9, 3, Jesus tells the disciples that the blind man uh, was not in this condition because of his sin or the sin of his parents. Rather, he was in this condition um, for the display of the glory of God in that moment. That man was born blind so that Jesus Christ could come and heal him. That's, so there's, there's a paradigm there we have to deal with. And yet, we know in 1 Corinthians 11.30, that Paul warns those who would abuse the Lord's Supper, citing reasons, citing this, citing the reason for their sickness and death as basically stemming from poor self-judgment and sinful misuse of God's, God's means of grace, his sacrament. So James, James knows this, there are paradigms there, and therefore he urges the elders of the church to pray and anoint the sick with, with oil. Now, just a side note. He calls for the elders because it's assumed that elders are men of integrity, men of prayer, um, and men whose gifting is obviously acknowledged by the church in service of the church. So that's why he says to call the elders. Now, the the elders we know are supposed to be men of faith, um, which means that their prayers that are offered in this faith will be heard by God, it's assumed. Um, we're not dealing with the Isaiah 1 people who are in the assembly. God's not listening to them because they're being disobedient. We're talking about the assumption of someone who is, is living a life of faith, living a life of obedience. And, of course, God will raise the person up. That's what the text says. It's all the, it's all the Lord's doing all the way. So this isn't a text giving permission for um, an intermediary um, role of a priest who is the only... Uh, mediator between you and God. <laughs> That's not, we're not talking about Roman Catholic unction here. Notice that James says, if the sick has committed sins, they will be forgiven. Now I have to confess to you, like this section of scripture was required a lot more of my attention this week than I wanted to give it, um, because there are a variety of views on the passage, and so I'm going to narrow them down to just two, and then We'll go from there. The first view is, is obviously widely held by pretty much most evangelicals. And it's basically, it's a fairly simplistic, straightforward interpretation of the passage. Um, olive oil, other oils, you know, um, frankincense was brought to Jesus. You know, the oils were used, uh, they were considered medicinal. So obviously then, you know, the elder was to come and pray and anoint the sick individual as a sign of both faith and works. It's a sign of faith and works, right? Prayer and faith, and then medicinal application and works. So, because we're whole people, whole bodies, whole gospel, right? We want to, uh, we we want to believe in both prayer and proper treatment holistically, if you will. So it's faith and action wrapped up in prayer. What did the guy do? I don't know. I've done this before. I've gone to the hospital and prayed over um, a young lady who I don't know if I'll see her in heaven, but she died. She was terminally ill, a friend of someone in our church in Michigan, and uh, met with her a few times while she was on her deathbed, shared the gospel. She seemed to understand. I took olive oil, and I, I actually just anointed her with a cross on her forehead. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly how to do that. 
which I believe leans us in the direction of do it and what that looks like may be culturally appropriate, <laughs> however that is. I wouldn't suggest dumping a whole bottle of oil on their head, but that could just be me. Now, there's a second view, and this second view was held by Rush Dooney, and the view was basically that this person was apostatizing from the faith or defecting from Christianity due to the pressures of being um, a Christian in a hostile culture. Look, in the first few centuries, Christianity was a minority, and Rome was not too keen on allowing this group to, to flourish. So you had major persecution um, break out. Obviously, Peter and Paul were killed by Rome, the, the Romans, so there was a major problem. So you had a hostile culture, and obviously um, this man was sick due to his sin and his hand-wringing anxiety. The man calls for an elder as an act of repentance. That's Rushduni's view. Um, when the elder would come, uh, he would help bring peace to this troubled soul, this unction, this anointing was a symbol placed on their forehead, and that was an indication of their repentance. And the reason why it's an anointing, okay, think of when Samuel anointed Saul or the anointings that happened in the Old Testament. The reason was the elder would restore this person back to their position as a prophet, priest, and king in Christ. So that's Rushduni's argument. Um, the symbol is obviously representational of something that's ethical, something that's judicial, something that's binding, something that means something. Um, and it, it wasn't just a meaningless act of symbolism, sort of like a pagan mythical mysticism or something. Now, I'm just to tell you, I'm comfortable with taking a hybrid of both views. <laughs> That's the easy answer, right? Um, but you're going to have to obviously invoke the right and duty of private judgment to discern for yourselves and study it for yourselves. Either way, I think the point remains, sin-sick souls need the help of other mature Christians, and elders are presumably called because they have exhibited the mark of maturity, and thus the officers functioning and serving the church as those officers, they're naturally going to participate in such restoration circumstances. Um, I will also suggest... Well, you, when you study it, just try to try to read some of the uh, some of the commentators that get into some of the language because there is language issues with the text. But either way, you know, good luck. You can decide on yourself what you think of that. <laughs> Verse sixteen. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So rather than wait until you're exhausted and burnt out on bitterness and sin and anxiety, I mean, you know, we are an ulcer-ridden culture with anxiety being not only an emotion, but something that can destroy your, your gut, can destroy your nerves. It can really wreak havoc on you. But rather than doing that, James says, be quick to confess when you've wronged someone. Now, there are some traditions, specifically um, in the Baptist church, <laughs> that will say this text means you're supposed to just tell everybody sinful thoughts that you've had today. All right, you know, your turn. Go ahead. What did you do wrong today? James says, confess your sins to one another. So just, you know, let it go. Empty it out. <laughs> take them out of your pocket, throw them on the table, and we'll just take a look. It's not what he's saying. He's urging Christians who have sinned against someone not to bottle that up and thus destroy themselves and probably get sick because of it. 
He's saying, be quick to confess. Don't pile on the sinful emotional baggage. As prophets and priests and kings in Christ, we ought to use our tongue, obviously not for spreading gossip and slander, which is what he's already warned us about, but for, for spreading confession when we sin. Um, if, if someone co confronts you on a sin, be quick to confess that. D don't get all tangled up in, well, you know, extenuating circumstances led me to say these mean things about you. No, don't, don't do that. Don't start, you know, trying to put all this bureaucratic red tape around your sin. Confess it, he says. Be quick to confess. And, and then prayer, of course, follows because we want to set things in the right direction. We want to be marked by prayer. We want to be people marked by righteousness. That is obedience to the law word of God. That's where righteousness is, is found in. And we want to do that so our prayers can be effectual, accomplishing much. Um, that's the problem, like in, in Isaiah 1. You had people who gathered to pray, and boy, were their prayers fervent and full of zeal. But God didn't listen to them. Why didn't he listen to them? Because they were living a life marked by sinful debauchery. They were mistreating their neighbor. They weren't people of faith and righteousness. They were people of outward pretentiousness. They were praying, but they weren't being heard. So, I think that's what James is getting at with the connection from the previous passage. Um, our prayers want to, we need them to be effectual. How many of us pray and we lack confidence? Like we don't expect God to answer it. God, would you bring Fauquier County to its knees so that it would all, everyone would be converted to um, the gospel of the kingdom and we could see a revival break out? But how many of us say that, but we don't really believe it? Or we don't expect it? Not that we are, you know... <laughs> coming from a, a disposition of, well, God owes us. You know, you owe it to us, God, because look at us. We're, a, we're trying to be faithful. No, God doesn't owe us. We, we all acknowledge, especially every week when we pray a prayer of confe confession, that um, we deserve far worse than what we have going on now. But our prayers are meant to be effectual, and the only way they're going to be effectual is, is by people of righteousness, people of faith. So no elder is required for such things. Self-government is presumed. That's the default assumption, is that you have the Holy Spirit, you have the ability to confess your sins, you have light, you have righteousness. It is your task as an individual before God to pursue effectual prayer and righteousness. Look at verse 17 and 18. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He was a man, he was a human being. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. That's a traditional understanding, by the way. The Old Testament doesn't tell us exactly if you read in 1 Kings, but that's okay. James says it, so it's true. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. The illustration of Elijah here is the perfect illustration for effectual prayer. His righteousness, Elijah was marked by faith. He was marked by trust in God. Um, he shut up the reins, and then he brought the reins forth. That's a true mark of effectual prayer, a true mark. When ordinary men, full of faith, petition the extraordinary God, remarkable things happen. I'll say it again. When ordinary men and women and you children, full of faith, when you petition the extraordinary God, remarkable things happen. And we need to believe that, and we need to trust that. And we need to pray that way. 19 and 20. My brethren, 
Brothers and sisters, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. These are the final two words of the letter, and I think it brings everything to a perfect close because... These things demonstrate what life is like in a community striving for holiness. This is what life is like. This is a reality check for life in a community striving for holiness. Sometimes people will turn away, which is what Rush Duny was getting at. You have you know, Christians who've named the name of Christ. They've been baptized. The mark of the covenant is on them, and they're tempted to walk away. They're tempted to be enticed by the world. But bring them back, right? The, a key ministry of the church is this, not only persuading unbelievers to repent and believe the gospel, but getting believers to repent and believe the gospel. It's an ongoing lifestyle. I think Luther nailed it. Repentance, he said in his 95 Thesis, the very first one, repentance is an ongoing lifestyle of the Christian. It's not a one-and-done thing. It's a daily thing. It's a daily mortification of our sinful desires and living in holiness towards God. So the point here, the point he makes here is restoration. That's the core of the gospel message, restoration. Love, which is properly defined as the lawful treatment of others, will cover a multitude of sins. And when we're bringing someone back into the sheepfold, we are assisting in the healing and forgiveness of the person's soul. Um, Helping stragglers find their way back to the truth saves their lives from death, and thus it brings them back into the forgiveness of Christ. And I will say this, because I think it connects, because here we have real legitimate stragglers who, how many people have you talked to that grew up in the church but are no longer walking with Christ? They're all over the place. So many people. Um, we are now several generations out from you know, the 1960s, several revolutionary efforts of, of, of bodily autonomy, we'll call it. And... We are several generations out. We have people who you may talk to that may not have grown up in church. But let me tell you, their parents did. More than likely. More than likely. Definitely the majority. So we have people who understand the truth. This young man I talked to last week, he grew up in the church. He grew up a Presbyterian. He probably knew some catechism questions. I should have asked him. But he's not walking with the Lord. We need to bring him back. We need to bring him back. So how do we, what do we do with this text? <clears throat> well, because it's the final um, section of James's letter, our final sermon, sermon in this series, I thought it would be good to just kind of review what we've covered, and then we can pull out some points of consideration. Whenever um, like Paul or any other of these letters were sent to churches, they would have just stood up and read the whole thing in the presence of others. And immediately it would have been copied and distributed for for the purposes of, of, of sharing, you know, a letter. I mean, good grief, James wrote it, the brother of Jesus. <laughs> Let's tell everybody what he said. It's a good thing. So we're not going to read it all again, but I want to at least summarize it. Now, keep in mind the context of the book, okay? James was written to Jewish Christians, Christians, of course, in general. Here we are today. They were scattered abroad throughout the Roman Empire, and he wrote urging them to keep the law of liberty at the forefront of their lives, embodying the righteousness of wisdom and wisdom of God in all of life's affairs for the goal 
of what? The gospel of the kingdom becoming a tangible reality where they're at. Okay? Just to summarize that again. He wrote to these Christians scattered abroad all over the place, urging them to keep the law of liberty. Keep the law of liberty on the forefront of your minds. And you do that by embodying the righteousness and wisdom of God. And you embody it in every single area of life for the goal that the gospel of the kingdom would become a tangible reality. Okay, so I, I'm just thinking right now in our local context, just as a side note, um, it is a huge discussion happening with regard to the Second Amendment and gun rights. Our governor of our, con our uh, country, that's uh, like a country, Virginia, the governor of Virginia has made it very clear from the get-go, especially after the recent um, majority wins for the Democratic Party. He said that gun control is on the list. He wants Virginia to be a red flag state which is a huge problem, and now we have a local issue to deal with. Um, December 12th, 6 p.m., there's a meeting. We have Board of Supervisors in our county who are considering, um, considering a statement of sanctuary city, if you will, sanctuary county, where any uh, oppressive, tyrannical you know, things that come out of Richmond, we will would like to politely decline. But the problem is we have a sheriff who's already seemingly waffling. Well, if it's the law, I have to obey the law. So what does it look like for us to tangibly live the kingdom in the sense of being embodying righteousness and wisdom and speaking truth and bringing light to a situation? It may mean e emailing the supervisors. I already drafted a template. If you guys, I'll try to get it to you this week. If all of you could send it to them, let's urge them to, to do the right thing and urge the sheriff. Um, why? Because we want to be free people. We, we don't want to be bothered by tyrants. But, but I'm just thinking, because it's a more urgent situation, those are the things that we're laboring for for the kingdom. Those are the big picture ticket items that we want. We want abortion abolished. We want a whole bunch of stuff abolished. We want government, <laughs> government schools abolished. We have a laundry list of things. But what it's going to require is us taking what James says very seriously and, and living it and being people shaped by the law of liberty. It's going to mean lots of prayer and lots of action. Now, many people, they don't consider James to be worth much other than a few aphorisms that are sprinkled in. Hey, it's like Proverbs. There's some wisdom bits and some nuggets to chew on. Go for it. But the truth is, James is absolutely a major, major, major reflection of the teaching of his brother Jesus. And I'll give you an example why. In James 1, we talked about joy in the midst of trials. What did Jesus say? Blessed are those who are persecuted. James 1 talks about the importance of perfection, that is, maturity. What did Jesus say in Matthew 5, 48? Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. James says that we should have an understanding of the generosity of God's gifts. What did Jesus say? Ask of it and it will be given to you. James talks about faith in relationship to doubt. What did Jesus tell his disciples? Have faith so that you can move mountains. Which I take to be covenantal judgment because Jerusalem was on a mountain and it was destroyed. There's some, in fact, Herod had um, excavated so much to even build the temple, rebuild it again. Different subject for a different time. James talks about perseverance, which leads to salvation. What did Jesus say? You are going to be hated, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Talking about the judgment of the first century. James warns us against the danger of anger. Anger, Jesus says, is a heart that's full of murder. 
and so on. James 2, James spoke about the blessing that is reserved for the poor. What did Jesus say? Blessed are the poor, right? James told us about the command to love, to, to keeping the whole law, not murdering, showing mercy, having friendship with God. What did Jesus say? You can't serve two masters. James chapter 3, there was talk of blessings for those who are peacemakers. What did Jesus tell us? They're blessed are those who are, are peacemakers. James chapter 4, there's blessings for those who are pure in heart. Jesus says as much. Um, the exaltation of the humble. What did Jesus say? Those who exalt himself uh, will be humbled and vice versa. That's in Matthew 23. What about the refusal to judge others unrighteously? What did Jesus say in Matthew 7? He didn't say to suspend all judgment. He said judge with righteous judgment, not unrighteously. Chapter 5, there's warning to those hoarding riches and oppressing others. What did Jesus say in Matthew 6? Don't store your treasures on earth. Uh, what did John, or James told us in chapter 5, the coming of the Lord who's at, who's at the door? Notice what Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse. Jesus is at the door, Matthew 23, 23. Um, what about the patience of the prophets in suffering? Um, Jesus says in Matthew 5, the prophets suffered and counted the trial as for the sake of the righteousness of God. James actually quotes Jesus directly on oath-taking. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Those are from the lips of his brother. And of course, Matthew 18, here we are again, the goal of restoration, the goal of church discipline, which always seems to come across so heavy-handed, is about the restoration and winning of someone back. James tells us the same thing. Now, the reason I, I brought this all up was for the purpose of not only reminding you of what we've covered, but to give you a snapshot of how Jesus-centered the book of James really is. Um, when you compare the themes to what Jesus gave us on places like the Sermon on the Mount and elsewhere, it's actually startling how close they are. It's startling. James was incredibly careful in writing his letter because he wanted to reflect his brother's teaching, and I think he accomplished that goal perfectly, actually. Which leads me to this conclusion. The law of liberty is a tremendous blessing for the life of the Christian. Children, we want you to know that it's a law of liberty. It's freedom. It's true freedom. It's true freedom to be obedient to Christ and what he has. And the reason that it's true freedom is because it prevents you from injuring yourself or others. Your sister, your brother, someone who may have took, taken some, something or said something, um, whatever the situation, it's a law of liberty that we're supposed to le live within. And James has not given us a bunch of fluff. Um, he doesn't water it down. This is a gospel-focused, law-saturated letter and exhortation. And they're not opposed to each other. It's a type of exhortation I think we as a church need to take very seriously. Remember what James said. He's writing to people. They were in exile. He says, follow the law of liberty. And you do that by embodying righteousness, by embodying wisdom. And, 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 and how you embody righteousness and wisdom, of course, is by following what God says. Being obedient people. Why? For the, for the, um, for, so we can live our lives in obedience to the kingdom? So that we can do what? Affect reality around us. And we're no different. We have the same task. The empire, or rather the beast, is engulfing every single area of life. Because of this, I believe we are in a very urgent time. 
We need the church of Jesus Christ in this nation to recapture the law of God. I agree with John Gresham Machen. He said the urgent, the most pressing need of the hour is the preaching of the law of God. And you might say, well, that guy sounds like a legalist. No, no, he's a you know, Princetonian, Westminster guy, uh, reformed post-mill. He, he's on board. We need the law of God. It needs to be something that we study. It needs to be something that we pray over, something that we obey, something we are cultivating in our homes with our families. We need to be teaching it. And frankly, we need to be teaching the rest of the world how to obey it too. And that'll be part of the letter to the Board of Supervisors, FYI. We need to teach them. And it'll be from a position of humility, but it'll also be from a, a position of kind of a, a code red situation. And using it as a launch pad to also teach on other issues. Why can't we be a sanctuary city for the unborn? And, and by that, we mean let's take local legislative action. To, to serve mothers, to protect babies, to stop selling Plan B in Walmart, those types of things. We have to teach people these things. And when we do this, when we embody this royal law, the righteousness, this righteousness and wisdom in all of our affairs of life, we bring forth the kingdom, and it truly does become a tangible reality. I believe this is kingdom influence on a massive scale. And and we, we've got to recover this. And we have our work cut out for us because not only do we have to teach the world, we have to teach the church. And that is probably an even harder task. See, I'm convinced that James's letter should be read much like how a soldier would read a notice from the commander. We are very much in a war and how we care for ourselves and each other all contributes to the outcome of the war. From the frontline inf infantrymen to the cooks in the kitchen back at the barracks, we are an advancing army of Christ the King, and we better be in communication with our commander, and we better be just as concerned with the health of our soldiers as we are the victory of the battle. Now, why do I conclude that this is how we should read this, read this letter, like a battle? The entire, uh, the entire letter of James is both a rebuke and an encouragement in all the places that rebuke and encouragement should be made. He rebukes the ungodly rich and he rebukes the Christian who is shown impartiality. Um, he encourages the Christian in the midst of the rebuke of the unrighteous. James goes back and forth illustrating time and time again for us that the law of liberty, the royal law of our king, is good and righteous and, and it should be played out. It's clearly a battle. Think of the prophetic judgment we covered last week, which was, was underway, and the great judgment of, our, of King Jesus was to come and befall the city of Jerusalem, O Jerusalem. Thus, James makes it sure that his army is squared away. All of us have to be squared away. Sort of language, right? The, the, the rank and file. We are the rank and file of Christ our commander. We need our lives to be squared away. The letter has to be heeded. And the marching orders are just what we covered a minute ago. These are the ethics that are involved in the war, expectations that Christ has of his bride, exhortations to be diligent during trials. Um, we are to be peacemakers and pure in heart. We are called to humility and obedience and patience. And where might the last great command end? Think about it. What might be the last thing the commander might say? Prayer. 
That's the end of the letter. Effectual prayer. Faith and action together. See, the great promise of James is that in our commitment to prayer, we know that God draws near to those who draw near to Him. And that's what prayer is, right? That's what prayer is. Prayer is you taking a conscious effort in your daily lives to pause for a moment and commune with God and acknowledge who He is and what He's doing in your life. If you're suffering, then pray, he says. If you're cheerful, pray with a melody. Pray with the psalmist, if you must. If you're sick, pray. Um, if you want to accomplish much, then the solution at the end, end of the letter is simply pray. It's amazing, all this stuff. He rebukes the rich. He goes into all these like, lofty prophetic judgments, and Christ is at the door. You know, make sure your lives are in line. This great first century judgment is going to come. And then at the end, he's just, pray. Prayer is the privileged vocation of every single Christian. It is the privileged vocation of every Christian. It is a privilege because we've been brought into Christ our head. It's a vocation because being brought into Christ our head requires communion with Him. And communion with Him requires our full attention. It is interesting that James says the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Why the adjective effective? He could have just said the prayer of a righteous man, right, accomplishes much. Why does he say the effective prayer? It seems redundant. Well, let me do some word uh, study with you real quick. The ESV, if you have an ESV, it says the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So... Either translations, whether you take the ESV or the NASB, the translations make the point. I think, I think the word effective in the NASB could be translated more like the ESV as working. And the word that's used is actually where we get our word energy from. The energetic prayer of the righteous person. Um, prayer, when it's offered by a righteous man full of faith, is to be working. That is... If you want your prayers to be effectual, your prayers should be doused in earnestness and energy. Don't just, oh, Father, it was a rough day. Help me. Father, it was a rough day. I need your grace. I need your mercy. I need, I need your love. I need your spirit. I, I need you. Be earnest in your prayer. Don't, don't, don't put half energy into it. Put your whole energy into it. This isn't casual or, or discourteous prayer. We're talking about earnestness. It's prioritized. It's energetic. You are enthusiastic about the prospect of communing, communing and talking with the God who made you. The Young's literal translation, I, I love this. It says, very strong is a working supplication of a righteous man. Sort of very straightforward Greek interpretation. That's why they call it a literal translation. Very strong is a working supplication of a righteous man. In other words, prayer is our privileged vocation, which requires not only our attention, but our passion and our energy. How much attention do we give to prayer? Well, we, know, we know the answer. I mean, all of us could say, well, you know, I probably should have prayed more this week. Not that there's a quota, by the way. Don't let that be the driving force. Oh, I didn't pray enough. So you're like, you have this guilt about it. <laughs> 
Don't let that guilt drive you. Let your communion with God drive you. I love, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, and it always stuck with me. And I don't remember where he is in a book somewhere. He said, never resist the urge to prayer. Never resist the urge. So if you're like celebrating something and you leave, pray for that person. D don't resist the urge. But be, pay attention to the urge because then you're just going to sit around. Well, I don't feel the urge. What am I supposed to feel? This magical thing? No, 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 no. Pay attention. Pay attention to what's happening around you. Prayer won't be effectual if your heart is only half full of faith. It won't be effectual if your attention is somewhere else. More to the point, prayer won't be effectual if you're not captivated by Christ. But keep in mind the context of what James is saying. Prayer is situated inside a community for the benefit of ourselves and each other. Um, the illustration of Elijah proves the point. Prayer is absolutely an act of interposition, an act of intercession for those we are called to serve. All right, we are to pray for each other. We are to intercede for each other. Why? Because prayer leads us to action. It should, anyway. We pray and we anoint the sick. We cultivate an ethic of repentance in our ecclesia, right? Our synagogue fellowship here ought to be such that our prayers and actions are intermingling regularly. Um, we, exhort, we exhort and pray. We pray and teach. We proclaim the gospel. We pray and then we pray some more. And then we proclaim some more. See, we pray some and then we encourage our brother or sister and then we go back and we pray some more. That's the relationship between faith and action. It's not supposed to be a pietistic thing uh, where you, you know, you're hiding in your prayer closet and you walk out so proud, so proud that you just, that you even have a prayer closet. Because <laughs> they don't. I've been to their house. They don't have a prayer closet. No, 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 no. See, faith set on fire by prayer and action is a recipe for kingdom advancement. Faith set on fire by prayer and action is a recipe for kingdom advancement. We win people into the fold. We restore people back into the fold. And it's this constant ebb and flow, ebb and flow of, of faith doused in prayer and action. And we'll end here. The royal law of liberty is made in the image of Christ. And when we pray... And when we pray, we, we reflect this image with humility and confidence. When we do that, we are shaped into proper kingdom citizenship as we labor in the world. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we submit our time to you. We submit um, our requests to you, requests that we made earlier. And God, ask for answer to prayer. Ask, God, that you would um, douse us in faith and action. And God, may we... Um, May we truly embody wisdom and righteousness in tangible ways, by the way we live, by what we say. Um, and, and may we teach, Lord. May we truly be a light to the nations. And that's what you've called us to. You've called us to salt and light, and part of the light is the illumination of your word. And we want to do that. We want God not only for the church to repent, but we want the nations to repent. And may they be brought into true wisdom and knowledge in the sight of the nations, which is your law word. So we ask for grace, God, and mercy. All of it undeserved, but all of it is requested. God, thanks to your Son, our Head, our King, our Lord. We serve him in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.